In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we're going to talk about when is a tent too heavy? What about changing careers to something in the outdoors? Sensible and sensitive birch bark harvesting, martial arts and teaching bushcraft, higher or lower for your camp for optimal temperature, particularly in the colder months of the year. What about taking cod liver oil pills and should we take a tarp or a tent under which situations? And then finally, a perennial question, materials for bedding in natural shelters. Welcome, welcome to episode 37 of Ask Paul Kirtley, the question and answer show where I answer your questions about bushcraft, survival skills, and outdoor life. And we've got another packed episode here. I am trying to get through as many questions as I can in these shows. I'm still only managing to do one of these a week. I could probably do two or three of these shows a week given the number of questions I get but unfortunately, I'm not able to do that at the moment. Um, maybe if somebody wants to offer to do some editing for me for free, um, these don't generate any money, so it's hard for me to pay anybody to do them. Um, but maybe we can have a conversation around that. But until then, one a week, and I will try and get through as many questions as possible. Again, um, just to reiterate what I said in the last episode, if you can follow me on Instagram as well, I'm putting regular, almost like mini blog posts out on there with little tips, little observations on there that are really useful, that will help build your knowledge of nature and knowledge of bushcraft and survival skills over time. And uh, that is a really useful way. I, I find it's an easy way that I can drip feed information out as and when I see it, I can share it. It doesn't take me a huge amount of time. Writing a three and a half thousand word magazine article or blog post takes me a long time, but I can put little bits out every day while I'm out and about, um, and I can share that with you. You get it pretty much real time, and you get the benefit of that in the season that it's happening as well. So there's less of a lag and it's in bite-sized digestible chunks. So at the bottom, you keep seeing my name, but also my, my username for Instagram. Go over there, follow me there as well. That'll be fantastic. And you get that extra information over and above what you're getting here on Asport Kirtley. So if you get this every week, you have a look at my Instagram posts every day and the other stuff on my blog, there is a ton of free information there that's free to use, free to consume, that is gonna help get you up the curve with all of these bushcraft and survival skills over time. And in particular, at the heart of it, knowledge of nature, knowledge of natural materials. So um, I will see you on one of those platforms soon. If you're listening to the podcast, you can find me on Instagram quite easily just by going to Instagram searching. If you're watching, there's a link in the sidebar if you're watching on my blog. If you're on uh, YouTube, there should be a link at the top of my profile somewhere on the YouTube top bar. I think it varies depending on whether you're looking on a mobile device or a laptop, but it's there somewhere linked from my profile on my channel as well. So, right, first question. 
This is about tents and it's from Mark Edgar. And he says he will be wild camping around Snowdon, which is the highest mountain in England and Wales, um, for five nights. Is a 2.75 to 3 kilogram two-person tent too heavy for one person to carry? And for those of you in the United States that are still using pounds, that's about six pounds, six to six and a half pounds in terms of weight that he's talking about there in terms of a two-person tent for, doesn't say whether it's one person use or whether it's just, he says one person carrying it, Mark, but I don't know if it's just you using it or whether you're sharing it with somebody else. So, I guess that will lead me into my answer. It depends whether it's you using it on your own or whether it's just um, and it's just you in there or whether you're sharing it and it's just you that's carrying it. Because um, often what happens when you're pairing up with somebody, you might carry the tent, they might carry a stove and other bits and pieces. So you share the shared equipment out between you and the weight sort of evens out that way. And carrying a larger tent between several people can often mean less weight per person than everybody carrying an individual tent. So it depends on whether or not, um, whether that's optimal, depends on whether or not it's one of you on your own. I would say generally um, for a, if you're just on your own, three kilograms is quite a lot. Now I don't know how strong you are, I don't know how used you are to carrying weight. I don't know how far you're walking every day. It sounds to me like you might be in a fairly localized area, although walking all the way around Snowdon's actually quite a long way around, around the bottom, you know, because you've got the Slamberis Pass and then you're dropping down in between where the pig track is and the Riz D track is, and then you're up and over and then you're all the way around the back and then you've got the tourist path coming up from, um, from Clamberis on the far side. So it's quite a way around. So if you're in and out all of that, and there's a fair amount of up and down and distance. So I don't know what you're doing or whether you're gonna be fairly static and doing day walks. It depends. I would say if you're backpacking, I would try and get it lighter than that, particularly if it's just for your personal use. If it's for two of you, I would say it's on the cusp of what I would be thinking of as acceptable. Personally, I would prefer something that was a little bit lighter than that for just backpacking. Um, if I was on a canoe trip and I wanted a slightly bigger tent with a bigger vestibule for wet buoyancy aids and you know a bit of wet kit in there, I might accept something that was towards three kilograms. But for backpacking, I would say about a kilo per person is the absolute maximum I'd want to be carrying. So for a one person tent, I want something that's as close to one kilogram as possible. So something like a Hilleberg Acto is a great one person tent. Um, it's expensive but it's light, it's tough, it's four season. That's my go-to one person tent. For two people, something like a Hilleberg Nalo or some of the uh, wild country or Terra Nova tents. Um, I've got an old Voyager, um, Voyager 2 tent, which is a two person tent, which is a lot lighter than the one that you're talking about. It's sub, um, sub two kilos for a two person mountain tent. So personally, if I've got the choice, I'll go for something lighter than what you're talking about. But is it too heavy? It depends on what else you're carrying. A lot of people might have a lightweight tent, but then their, their sleeping bag might weigh two kilograms. Um, so, you know, it depends. It's the overall pack weight that you want to be concerned about. 
and um, if if you choose every single piece um, carefully and then you just happen to have this tent um, tents are expensive then um, and, and that and you can't afford to buy a really lightweight two-person tent then maybe that's the right answer but if you've got the choice from the start and you've got the budget I would try and get something a little bit a little bit lighter but at the end of the day the most important thing is you get out there and you enjoy it try not to pack anything that you don't need um, don't pack anything just in case apart from spare head torch batteries and a first aid kit um, don't take too many clothes don't take too much food don't take too much fuel try and keep your pack weight down and then whether your two-person tent then weighs two kilos or three kilos particularly if this is you know the start of something new and you're looking to to do more with it then i would say that's fine go with it and then if you want to upgrade um upgrade later on but if you're just one person on your own and you're carrying a three kilo tent i would say try and borrow a lighter weight tent a lighter weight one person tent or even a lighter weight two person tent from somebody else because on your own with everything else that's going to start weighing quite a lot with somebody else just about all right okay This is from Mikal, Mikal Seps, and it's quite a long question. Um, thanks me for the shows. Um, thank you, Mikal. Um, so his question is, let's just say that someone like me has chosen a career path that is definitely not for him and wants to get away from it as soon as possible. I'm learning web development. The target for dream job is unknown though. It sure should be something active, outdoors, maybe even dangerous. And especially something that you can enter without almost any experience or education in that area. Coast Guard, kayak instructor, park ranger, firefighter, you name it. Tell me please, what would be your advice, Paul? Uh, P.S. I'm not sure whether it's even an appropriate question for your channel, so it's okay if you don't answer me. Best regards, Mikkel. Um, well, it has taken me a little while uh, to get back to that question, Mikkel, but I do get asked a fair amount about career advice for getting into working more outdoors. Um, often it's specifically about bushcraft, and I do still need to put out something that helps people with that it's on my list I talked about maybe doing a podcast or doing some videos I will do that when I get the opportunity but to answer this specific question sounds to me like you want to do something outdoors um, you don't like what you're currently doing you're doing web development uh, but you're not really quite sure what you want to do now I I don't know if you have any particular outdoor passions you mentioned a few things there you mentioned about kayaking you mentioned uh, a couple of others um, in many places uh, you have to have some qualifications to be say a kayak guide or a kayak instructor or a canoe leader or a climbing instructor um, or a mountain leader you have to have experience and you have to have some sort of instruction now where you are i don't know what the rules are but i think um what whether or not you need a piece of paper to say that you um that you are qualified i think 
at the end of the day, the, the most important thing is the experience that you have before you start taking people out. Because if you want to take people out into the wilderness, whether you want to take them out on the water or in the mountains or in the forest, you have to be able to look after yourself and you have to have enough experience to be able to look after other people um, in terms of knowing how different situations might play out and knowing how to uh, have some ability to relate to a group and so you need to build up to that. You can't just suddenly decide, I don't want to do this job inside, I'm gonna go out and be a kayak instructor, or I'm gonna go out and be a mountain leader. Yes, you can get that experience relatively quickly if you focus, you can do qualifications relatively quickly if you, if you focus, at least to the basic level, but then you're gonna to have to build on that, and that, was, that would be the way that I would recommend. I think a lot of people look at outdoor instruction like an easy option in terms of qualifications, whereas in most developed countries around the world, um, whether you're talking about North America or Europe, there will be some sort of mountain guiding association, there will be some minimal qualifications. It's the same with the water sports, whether it's kayaking or canoeing or surfing or windsurfing. There will be some association for professionals and there will need to be some basic qualifications or basic experience that you have to have before you can then start being responsible for other people. Um, and if you want to do that, go down that route. My recommendation would be find something that you're passionate about and go down that route and do something that you would be enjoying anyway. So be somebody who introduces people to something that you're passionate about. Because when it's raining, when it's cold, when you're tired, when you have a hangover, or what, you know, you, you've had an argument with your, with your spouse or your parents or your landlord or whatever it is, and you're not feeling 100%, you still need to be able to go outside and with your customers, with your clients, with your students, and be enthusiastic and be passionate about what you're sharing with them and be passionate about um, the environment that you're in because otherwise you won't do a very good job. So I would, I would, if I was gonna give you any recommendation, whatever the requirements are for um, going through qualifications, getting experience, do those, but choose something that you're gonna be passionate about. Come rain or sunshine or wind or snow, or whatever the weather, whatever the conditions, um, whatever morning that you've had, whatever bad news you've had the day before, you can go out and be passionate and you can enthuse other people about the thing that you're passionate about. So I don't know what that is for you. If you want to be an instructor in outdoor skills, that would be my recommendation. But generally, if you want to uh, work outdoors, if that if you feel that that's your calling, if it's not just a, if it's not necessarily about sharing skills with other people, it's just about working outdoors and being in the fresh air and being in a in a in a natural environment. Then yeah, find something that that suits. Park rangers, um, you know, working at a nature reserve. Um, you might have to start volunteering to start off with a lot of the organizations that are involved with conservation or nature reserves or national parks. They don't always have a lot of funding to employ a lot of people, but if you start by volunteering, getting involved, then maybe there will be an opportunity open to you. And that's often the way that people get into those sorts of jobs. Firefighting, I, I would assume, as is most places, is quite uh, straightforward in terms of knowing what you have to do, applying in a certain way, having a certain physical fitness level, 
all of those sorts of things. The same with um, life saving, whether it's lifeguarding or, or, or lifeboats, um, you know, something will have a requirement, a standard that you have to meet. You have to have certain experience on the water maybe, you have to have certain levels of fitness, maybe you have to have certain levels of eyesight. All of those things will be stipulated quite clearly and your path into those careers can often be, it, it, by straightforward I don't mean it's easy, but I mean it's clear what you have to do to get a position within an organisation. So I would sit down and think about what you want to do. And I would think about it away from your normal workplace. I wouldn't think about it in your normal workplace. Um, maybe go and do a camping trip. Go away from other distractions. Walking is often quite meditative. You get into a rhythm. If you go on a hiking trip for a couple of days, you walk, you camp, you walk on your own, you clear your head, think about what you really want to do in your job, in your life, and if you can combine those with doing something outdoors, that is a good way to think about it. Don't be in the environment that you're not happy with and thinking, oh, I really don't want to be here, I want to be somewhere else, because that could just be the motivation. You're, think, you're trying to attach to something else, and you're not quite sure what it is, but you know it's not this. Get away from this, go somewhere else where you think you're going to be more comfortable in nature, go for a trip in nature, be on your own, clear your head, think about what you want to do, um, be inspired by nature, and then perhaps something will become clear to you about what you want to do. But if it's not clear, maybe try several different things. Get involved in different areas, get involved in kayaking, in hiking, in climbing, see if you can volunteer with certain organizations around nature or conservation, outdoors, see, try different things, see which one resonates with you. That would be my advice. As much as I can give advice in that specific instance. All right. This is from Scott and this is about birch bark harvesting. Hi Paul, enjoying the blog and Ask Paul Kirtley series very much. I would value your opinion on the most sustainable way to harvest birch bark to practice my firelighting skills. Can I take a small amount from a living tree without causing any damage? Or is it best to take only from deadfall? Best regards, Scott from Manchester. Um, good question, Scott, and one that um, I think a lot of people would benefit uh, from getting the answer to because I often see trees that have been scarred or marked by people removing bark from birch trees. And um, there are two issues really um, in terms of damaging. One is whether you're actually causing harm to the tree in terms of physical harm, in terms of impeding its ability to grow, opening it up to infection, fungal, bacterial, etc. That's one issue. The other issue is, is more of an aesthetic one. Um, so are you damaging the aesthetic of the environment? Does it look less pristine for you having collected that material? And I would say generally with birch bark it does because with silver birch we're talking about um, in the UK but it's true for Western Europe and Northern Europe in general, silver birch is the predominant um, species that most people are going to be thinking about and we've also got downy birch which looks very similar. Um, those trees, if you cut a section of bark off, the bark is very light coloured, you remove it, it's quite a burgundy, a red colour underneath and it will certainly um, 
it will it will become that color underneath it will start off it will be a green or it'll be a yellowy orange color depending on how much of the bark you remove and then that will darken over time and become a very sort of dark purpley burgundy scar which is very visible from a distance um, and I would suggest that that's not something you want to be doing particularly in areas that other people are using because it spoils the look from the perspective of other people and even if you do take a small amount off which doesn't end up being damaging to the tree um, it encourages other people to do the same and so the one thing I've seen is that somebody in areas um, for instance here where I'm on a site where we run courses sometimes and I always tell people don't remove bark from living standing trees only remove birch bark from um, trees that have come over dead trees or even green trees that have come over that are going to die um, windfall windblown trees or parts that have bro broken off only take the bark from those um, don't take it from any standing living tree and in t if you if you're not sure just assume that anything standing up is alive and anything that's fallen over is is okay but even you know if it's upright don't touch it even though i say that the beginning of the courses i still find occasionally that people seem to have forgotten this or slightly more irritatingly maybe ignored that and they've taken bark off a, a small piece of bark often off a tree now that in and, in and of itself on a reasonable sized tree is probably not going to stop it from growing it's probably not going to leave it too open to infection as long as it's healthy but what then happens is that somebody else has seen that somebody's taken bark off that tree and they think it's okay and then they'll remove some and then somebody else will remove some and then you end up with an increasing amount of bark being removed even though we're saying don't do it so in an area where there isn't anybody saying don't do it there's even more chance of that happening if you're taking bits off so for that reason alone I would say don't take bark off living trees then of course you've got the potential for damaging the tree and I, I just don't think it's necessary there's absolutely no reason to take bark off um, standing birch trees birch trees don't live very long they're a pioneer species at the moment um, in this area there's loads of these little those of you that are watching the videos um, I'm sat on a log and there's lots and lots of these little little trident shaped seeds which are coming down off the birch trees all around here and they're strewn all over here it's like confetti almost um, there are leaves coming down now as well and there are leaves coming off various tree species in the area here but there's a lot of birch seeds all over and if this were disturbed ground if this was ground in the right condition a lot of these seeds would become small birch saplings and that is one of the benefits that uh, birches bestow on an area of woodland that's been felled or damaged or windblown or burnt they go in and they repopulate and they start growing and it makes it into a forest again and then other trees once they once they become established and they thin out a little bit by natural selection uh, you know some of the trees do better than others and you get this start to get a birch canopy you get other trees coming up below it you get the oaks and you get the beeches and the ash and everything starts to re-establish properly um, they're a pioneer species they grow fast they don't live very long they certainly typically don't live more than about 90 or 100 years they often blow over the wood even though the um, 
the bark is uh, well preserved by the oils in the bark and it doesn't rot down very quickly, the wood rots down very quickly. Um, it's, once it starts to die off a bit, um, you get um, fungal infections going in, you get birch polypore, you get horse's hoof fungus. Um, they come down quite easily in breezes, in wind, in strong breezes and winds, and you get a lot of birch down in the woods. So looking around here, there's a birch that's down over there, there's a birch that's down over there, there's birch that's down over there, there's a big birch down at the bottom there, and that's just naturally blown over just in this small area of woodland. There is more than enough birch bark. That one over there, you can't see it, but that one over there, um, as I say, we run courses in this area. We've harvested bark off that trunk several times and there is still material left on there for people to take. And that's where we're running courses. It's not just one individual coming and taking a bit to use. So always take it off stuff that's been blown down, that's fallen down, that's died. There's, it's coming through quite quickly. Birches grow quickly. They they die quickly and they give way for other species. And so, and, and the bark is preserved for a long time. The oils in the bark keep it from rotting. So even when it's down, you can collect it and it will work for phyllating. I think sometimes people worry that it's not going to work because it's dead, um, because it's not, um, doesn't have the vitality of the, of the standing trees. No, the stuff from the, the fallen birches will be absolutely fine. And that's true of the Eurasian species of birch as much as it is true of the North American species of birch. So wherever you are listening to this, um, try not to damage living trees. There's no need to. Aesthetically, it's not great. It's not great for the tree. Um, and there's always plenty of bark down on the ground. And then if you're making a trip, whether it's a hike, a day hike, or a multi-day hike, or a canoe trip, or a ski trip or a mountain biking trip and you're camping and you want to light a fire, you know that you're going to need to, to light a fire at some point in the evening, in the morning, whenever it is. When you see a downed birch, just take the stop, spend five minutes, 10 minutes just taking some bark, put it in a pocket, put it in a rucksack, put it in a, in a, in a, in a trouser pocket, put it in the back of your cycling jersey, whatever it is that you're doing, and then you've got it with you for when you need it. Thinking ahead, again, is, is an important part of um, being outdoors. And if you're collecting stuff for practicing nearer to home, so say you might be out for a walk in the woods, but you want to practice dropping sparks onto birch bark in your backyard, same principles apply. Collect it when you see it, collect it from dead wood, not from live standing wood. Martial Arts and Teaching. This is from Ollie Fitton. Hi Paul, I recently watched your presentation at the 2016 Bushcraft Show on YouTube. Um, and if you've not seen that, I will link to that. I can never get this right. Which side is it that I need to point? Here, somewhere, there will be a thing that comes across a card that you can click on, it will bring some more information, you can click on the link, it will take you to that video. If you're watching uh, on YouTube, that's easy. If you're watching on my blog, show notes, there will be a link to that video because it's on my blog as well. And if you're listening to this on a podcast, then go to my blog and search on Bushcraft Show 2016, you will find the presentation there. So just so people know what you're referring to. 
Um, and if they haven't seen it, it's worth, even though it's me, it's worth watching. Even though I'm saying, saying so myself, it's worth watching. It was a good presentation. And there's still a freebie available. Um, the link that I talk about in that, in that presentation is still available. So if you haven't watched that video, if you haven't downloaded the free gift, the free, the free download that's available as part of watching that, then it's well worth your effort to go and do that. So, Ollie's question is, um, I recently watched your presentation at the 2016 Bushcraft Show on YouTube. I hadn't realized you were a jiu-jitsu practitioner. Can you please discuss your history in martial arts and the impact that this history has had on both your practice of bushcraft and how you teach it? Um, Ollie Lancaster, UK, uh, 10 years of Taekwondo, white belt in outdoors type stuff. Cool. Okay, Ollie. Um, yeah, so I, there are two martial arts that I've practiced for any length of time. Um, I did try Taekwondo when I was a teenager. Some, uh, some friends of mine had started to go to a club in a small market town near to where we lived at the time. And I did go for a few sessions, but um, I don't know, it didn't, it didn't resonate with me at the time. I think because um, I was a little bit chubby at one point as a teenager. I wasn't as athletic as some of my friends and I just felt um, like, uh, just being honest here, I didn't feel like it was something that I could do. Well, they seemed to naturally take to it. I didn't have as much self-confidence in my own ability to train myself to do things then when I was 11 or 12, or however old I was at that point, 12, 13. Um, that as I do now. Um, now I see something and I'm thinking, well, I can train myself to do that. I can do some physical training. I can do some mental training. I can carve out some time to do that. But you learn those disciplines uh, through your life at that point. So I, I'd been interested in doing martial arts. I'd bought some books on Kung Fu later in my teens. Um, I thought about doing karate at university, but I was heavily into cycling at that point. I was racing, um, cycle racing, mountain bike racing. And I, I don't know, I think mentally compared, you know, combined with doing a degree, I just didn't feel like I had space to commit to something else. Little did I know that life gets a lot busier, but as a student that seemed quite busy, but um, uh, you know, and I was hiking and camping and all those sorts of things in the summer as well, as well as cycling. So I was, cycling was my big thing, but I'd had an interest in, in potentially training as a martial art. Um, and then I did maths at university, uh, and then I went to work in, in London and I wasn't doing the physical things that I'd been doing earlier. I, hadn't, I wasn't doing as much hiking, I wasn't doing as much uh, cycling, um, I wasn't getting out um, camping as much as I had been. Um, I'd been a member of the gym at university and it, which was quite inexpensive and all the gyms in London were expensive. And so I just wasn't doing anything physical. And then at that point I decided I would go and fulfill this desire that had been lingering for years and years and years, probably 10 years, um, I would say, since I was in my teens, um, to go and, and try and learn a martial art. And um, I don't remember exactly why I fell upon jiu-jitsu. Um, I can't even remember how I found the club that I found, to be honest with you. Um, but I started going to train, and it was a small club, and uh, I started going and I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed the physicality of it. Um, I enjoyed the break, I enjoyed the break falling. I enjoyed 
um, the throws, the locks. I just, I just, the, the mechanics of it I enjoyed, the, the physicality of it I enjoyed, um, the gradings were quite tough, um, and I just enjoyed the whole process. I felt like I was achieving something, I was training with some good people, some nice people, some tough people, um, and it was just a good, it was a good atmosphere. And so I, I, I continued with that. Um, and when I'd done a couple of, uh, yeah, I'd done a couple of gradings in, in jiu-jitsu, the place, the venue that I was training at in jiu-jitsu, there was a, um, a, a Wing Chun Kung Fu instructor um, from Hong Kong who started teaching a class at the same venue on a different evening. And I went along to that out of interest um, after a while, and I, I found I enjoyed that. And I found it didn't really get in the way of, um, of the jiu-jitsu either. I felt that the two in a way complemented each other. Um, the, the, the Wing Chun striking, um, there's a lot of grapple, dis, there's a lot of lock um, disarms um, or evasions in Wing Chun, the way that you, the way that you can manipulate your elbows and your wrists. Um, from the Wing Chun training, I felt like it, it, I was, it was easy for me to get out of arm bars and things with the Jiu Jitsu. The striking complemented the Jiu Jitsu. Um, so the whole thing I felt, you know, there was a little bit of an issue with some of the footwork being slightly conflicting. But overall, I found the two went very well together. Um, and so I started, I, I ended up training in both. And um, so from after doing my yellow belt, my orange belt in Jiu Jitsu, I started doing Wing Chun. And um, my Sifu was um, a Hong Kong trained uh, Wing Chun practitioner. He'd left Hong Kong after the Chinese had taken Hong Kong back in 1997, I think it was. Um, and so he, he had a good lineage in terms of his, um, his training in Kung Fu. And he's a very good instructor. And so I enjoyed that as well, all the while I was progressing with, with the, uh, the Jiu-Jitsu. And so I practiced, that was in the 90s, was that in the 90s? Yeah, that was the 90s, um, late 90s, 1990s that I started doing the jiu-jitsu and then probably about six, nine months later I started doing Wing Chun. And I, I practiced both, I still do the Wing Chun occasionally now. Um, I haven't trained in jiu-jitsu formally for quite some time because I, I find it hard to be consistent. Um, and one of the things was I eventually I went through to, to brown belt and then black belt and I was running a dojo in London and then when I became more professionally involved in teaching outdoors I found it harder and harder and harder to maintain that because I just wasn't there there were multiple weeks when I just wasn't there and in the end I, I gave up the club and I stopped, uh, stopped doing that and I continued training um, on and off for, for a while uh, for you know some some time after that but I, I found it hard to train consistently um, because I was just away for so much um, then I started the business and again that hasn't been conducive to me training consistently um, I would like to get back to it um, and whether I whether I go back to one or both um, as I say I do train in the Wing Chun occasionally still um, less so in the jiu-jitsu i don't know I, I like them both and i think for me going back to your original question um in terms of teaching what i teach now 
um, I think there's a similar mindset in, in, um, in the way that you approach both teaching bushcraft in, as well as teaching jiu-jitsu. I think there's a similar mindset in terms of the way that you approach problems, the way that you approach adversity in the outdoors. It, to me, is exactly the same way as you might approach adversity uh, in a physical situation on the mat. You know, when you're grappling with somebody, um, it, you, you don't get angry. Um, you, 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 stay, you try and stay calm. You try and use your skills. You try and be objective. Um, you try and channel your abilities to the right outcome. You work with what's going on around you rather than working hard against it. Um, you yield where you need to yield and try and use that to your advantage. It's the same sort of mentality um, to when you can't fight nature. It's one of the reasons why I get quite irritated with a lot of these American survival shows where it's man versus nature. No, man will always lose. Man will always lose. If you think about nature as a whole, yeah, if you try and butt your head against it, it's bigger, it's harder, it's colder, it's hotter, it's wetter, it's faster, it's more hungry, or whatever it is, than you are. Yeah, you will lose. So you have to work around it. You work through the cracks. You have to go, you go roll with the punches. You have to do that. Otherwise, you can't fight. You can't be a rock all the time. It doesn't work particularly not when you're dealing with natural environments and being away from the support structure of human society. You just can't do it. So um, being pragmatic, working to your strengths, understanding your weaknesses, training your weaknesses when you're training, those things all come across to how I practice my own bushcraft skills and my outdoor skills in general and also the way that I try and teach people to approach it as well. Um, it's not just about having a shopping list of kit, it's not about having a shopping list of skills that you've ticked off, you've done them once. It's the same. I talked about um, in the last episode I talked about uh, bow drills and the question was about bow drill woods which ones should you definitely not use but I also talked quite a length about ones that do work and one of the things I said there was, don't just get an ember once with a particular species of wood and then move on to the next one, because that could have been chance. It's the same way as when you practice a throw or a lock or a hold in jiu-jitsu. You don't just do it once, or you don't get it to work in training once and then you think, I've mastered that. It's, it's just not the mentality that you have in martial arts. You practice stuff repetitively. Same in Western boxing. It's practice, 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 practice. Training, 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 training. Repetition, repetition. Even when you don't want to. Doing the things that you're least good at so that you get better at overall. All of those things apply to just another physical skill which is bushcraft it's a it's a it's a range of techniques that you can apply under different circumstances you know it, no different to a range of techniques that you apply in different circumstances but the way that you learn to apply them is experience you don't just learn them in a silo whether it's bushcraft skills or jiu-jitsu or any other martial arts skill you know your kicks in taekwondo your combinations that you do um, you learn them, you practice them, you, you, you spar, you learn to apply them versus something else which is moving. It isn't just a static target and it's the same with nature. It's not just a static thing that's the same every time. You, 
you practice against this, applying the same technique but in different circumstances every single time which is why I say don't just practice your bow drill with one instance you have to practice material selection is different every time even though you do your best to be consistent every single piece of wood is slightly different it's grown in a different place it's been subjected to different moisture different wind it's been drying for longer it's been dead for shorter or longer period than the last piece that you used etc etc and so you apply the same technique in different circumstances and you gain more experience and that allows you to apply it more pragmatically, more flexibly going forwards. That's how you should approach your bushcraft skills. It's not just a tick list where you've done it once and you move on. That way is the way to mediocrity. The way that you get better is by constant practice and you have to be honest and work on the things that you're weakest at, maintain the things that you're strongest at, at and work to your strengths in times of adversity, but in training you've got to work on the things that you're weakest at. And that mentality for me resonates massively with the same mentality in martial arts training. So that to me is you know, my personal philosophy and then in terms of teaching, I think I benefited a lot from having taught jiu-jitsu at a dojo. I taught under an, another instructor for a while and then I had my own dojo and you're just teaching people physical skills week in week out. You're not, you know, most of our jobs these days um, in the western world, in the first world, are largely to do with information exchange. Um, most people um, if they're working in an office, their job is probably around information exchange, whether it's a sales job, customer service job, whether it's accounts, legal, tax, marketing. It's all about information. It's about communicating with other people. It's about communicating information to people, writing it down, passing it on, doing emails, putting it in spreadsheets, putting it on billboards, putting it on adverts, whatever it is, it's about information. Yes, there are people who have other jobs as well in our, in our societies, but it's all dependent upon information. We're increasingly dependent upon technology and information, and whether it's plans and drawings, or whether it's sat-navs, or whatever it is, a lot of our jobs involve not so much physicality, a lot of information, a lot of cognitive ability. When you come to teach jiu-jitsu, or anything else which is a physical skill, um, you know, so sports coaching, or um, teaching bricklaying or anything like that. It's that yes, there is some cognitive skill, but there's a physical element to it as well. And um, it's it's a very similar process in terms of how you coach somebody uh, in canoeing, in bow drilling, how to break fall. It's the same sort of process. The way that you approach it in teaching, in solving the problems for them, they, the, the way you've explained something or demonstrated doesn't work for them so you try a different way. I use the same sort of processes when I'm teaching somebody how to make cordage or make a feather stick or make a bow drill set as I do when I'm teaching them how to break fall, do a backwards roll, forwards roll, um, how to do osotogari or whatever it is. You teach them the same way. You build up the technique, you help solve problems when they don't quite um, work when the technique doesn't quite work for somebody, it's the same process, but it involves a physical feedback loop that isn't necessarily there when you're teaching things that are just information-based. So it was very, very beneficial to me personally, having had that um, experience of teaching people 
uh, physical skills that involved explanation, demonstration, ability to actually do the thing, and then transposing that across to teaching uh, bushcraft. Though they were very, very transferable skills. All right, here's a speak pipe question from Craig Taylor. I'll bring this up to the microphone. Hi Paul, this is Craig Taylor. I've spent the past few weeks binge watching all of your videos and I don't think I've seen or heard this question asked, so hopefully it's the first time you've been asked it. Here goes. My question relates to setting up a camp or a base location or just an overnight bivy area at altitude or at elevation. What I mean by that is, I remember back to my mountain leader days and I remember that the lower you go, the, the more you descend, the warmer it becomes, which seems like a logical thing that you'd want to do if you're setting up an overnight location. But I'm also mindful that overnight, cold air tends to drop into those lower lying areas and make it colder than if you'd been higher up. So I just wondered what your thoughts, ideas and insights might be into this, you know, potentially quandary that people might find themselves in. Do they drop because it becomes warmer, but if they do, are they going to drop into these cold areas where the cold air might collect? That's my question. Just want to say, keep up the good work, Paul. You're really making a difference to, to the way that people see and perceive what bushcraft is and isn't. And I'm sure I'm one of many hundreds, if not thousands of people that really benefit from what you're doing. Keep up the good work. Oh, thank you for those kind words, Craig. Good question. Um, and it's certainly something whenever you're setting up camp, whether you're deciding where to stop, whether you're looking at a map and deciding how much further you're going to go before you stop for the day, whether you're surveying a local area about where you're going to put your tarp or your tent, or you're going to build a natural shelter, whether it's a leaf shelter or a Quincy in the snow or anything else that you might be able to think about. Those considerations about the lay of the land are always there. They're one of the key things that you need to think about. And you, you've highlighted two, two key uh, sort of thermodynamic uh, weather and temperature things that we need to think about. One of them is the fact that cold air is heavier, is denser than warm air. So you're going to get cold air pooling in localized low spots. And that's something that we need to be mindful of. Um, also, as you go up in altitude, as you say, the temperature tends to drop. We all know that when we climb a mountain, even on a summer's day, it's going to be colder at the top than it is at the car park at the bottom, even if it's just a day walk on Snowdon. Um, we know that if we go further afield and we, we go up in altitude, even in summer, we could be doing a hike at altitude in South America or, or, or in, the, um, in the Himalaya. We know that at altitude, it's gonna be cold, particularly at night. And 
And we also, you know, for example, people who do Kilimanjaro treks as well. I mean, you're, you're, you're pretty much on the equator. You're not far from the equator. You're starting um, in a warm African country at the bottom that is subtropical. Um, and at the top, it's, it, it, it's Arctic, it's glacial. The same as when you get in an aeroplane and you fly up to 35,000 feet. It's cold up there just because of the altitude. Now, those big temperature differences tend to be over quite large altitude changes. So the question, the, the other part of the equation and the question we need to ask then is about the energy expenditure required to get to the, get to the spot. So yes, it might be optimal to drop down away so that we are gaining degrees of temperature as we drop down but then if we're going to have to come back up the next day what's the what's the energy ex energy expenditure and remember going downhill is often almost as hard as going uphill in terms of the uh the, the wear on our legs you know if you're having to stop physically stop yourself on a pack from going too fast or too far every single step, particularly on boulder fields. And it can be really hard work dropping down. I'm thinking about, say, the back of Ben McDewey, if you're dropping down off the top of Ben McDewey. It's hard work going down there. It's hard work going up there. Um, so you've got to really question whether it's worth the effort, because yes, you might be burning more calories overnight trying to stay warm, but how many calories are you burning going down and up and how fatigued are you going to be as a result of that? Um, and also the added time. So I would say the key thing, particularly in the colder months of the year, is not being localized low spots. I think you're going to make a bigger difference with that than you are by trying to drop down to gain temperature. Um, you know, even in a high, high camp, you might be between, you know, some, you've got, two peaks here you might have dropped down to a coal in between um, but if that is all up and down then the colder spots on that coal are going to be in the low spots where where cold air is pooled in that localized area and that those are the places you don't want to be of course they can also be more damp as well just because water will tend to pool in them but those localized low spots are things to be mindful of and those are more those temperature differences across those localized low spots are more pronounced in the colder months of the year than they are in the warmer months of the year and and I've used this example before I think but when I'm up in the north of Sweden in the boreal forest in winter there, there can be not much of a height difference between the trees and down onto a riverbank down a, a riverbank onto a river or down onto a, a frozen lake or down onto a frozen swamp. It could be half a meter, could be, you know, two feet, say. Um, but the temperature differential can be five degrees centigrade, five degrees Celsius or more. And, and what's more, as you step out from having a bit of cover in the trees and onto the, uh, onto the lake or the river, you've also got that lack of covering as well so you get that you get that carport effect with trees over the top of you where cold air isn't pushing down on you same as you you park your car 
under a roof on the side of a building, it can be a frosty night, but your car windscreen's not frosty, whereas if you parked out the front, it would be frosty. You get that effect with trees over the top of you as well, particularly evergreens in the winter. Um, so stepping out from the woods down a meter onto a river, onto a swamp can be 10 Celsius difference easily. And some of the coldest times you will have in the boreal forest are when you're down on frozen lakes, down on frozen rivers, even during the day, particularly if, there's, if you're not in the sun, if there's, because the sun's gonna be low, the shadows are gonna be long, you can easily be in the shadow of the trees that are on the side of the river. When you're down on the river, you could be walking along the river, pulling a pulk, pulling a toboggan, and you can be in the, in the shadow and it can be bitterly cold down there because all the cold air is pooling on there as well and you're just constantly in this dense, cold air all the time that you're down traveling there. And that can make a difference when you're traveling, never mind when you're camping. So when you set up your tent, just raise, you know, camping on a little raised area that might be 50 centimeters or a meter higher than the surrounding ground can make a big difference in temperature. Um, so th it's that, those sorts of circumstances where I think it makes a critical difference. So, you know, you can make degrees and degrees and degrees of difference just by raising yourself up a meter and positioning yourself there. Whereas it, you're going to have to cover hundreds of meters of elevation in the mountains generally to get that natural temperature gradient difference from high ground to low ground. So I would say seek out the, seek out the localized high spots in terms of avoiding the localized low spots, particularly in cold weather. I would serious, unless it's very exposed to bad weather, I would generally not be going out of my way to drop down too much in terms of finding a camp. Now, if I had the choice between, again, I'll use Ben McDewey as an example, because it's one of the colder places um, in the UK. It's a subarctic plateau. Now, if I had the choice between camping at the top of Ben McDewey or dropping down to the coal between it and the next hill, and the name, name of which I, I forget, but the one that goes out that's parallel to the side of the Larry Grew, um, or dropping down between it and, and Derry Cairngorm on the backs on the other side, I would do that because that drop is, is part of my route. So in my route planning, if I'm covering that ground and I have to camp somewhere in this region, I'm going to camp in the lower part because I'm going to be less exposed. I, I've maybe dropped down a couple of hundred meters. It's going to be warmer and there may well be more likely to be water there. I would bring that into my calculation there rather than are, well, I'm just going to drop down a couple of hundred meters just because I might be a couple of degrees warmer because I personally, I don't really want to then have to climb back up that couple of hundred meters. I don't think that weighs up for me in my experience of doing a lot of walking in the mountains. But in terms of not, in terms of planning that into my overall route plan, absolutely. In terms of then of avoiding the localized low spots when I, when I camp in a particular area, making sure I'm not down in the local dips because it's not gonna fill up with water and it's not gonna fill up with cold air, depending on what time of year it is. Absolutely, that's something that I always think about. So hopefully that, that delineation helps there, Craig. Uh, another speak pipe question. I've tried to, tried to hit the speak pipe questions. I know there's a few more waiting. Uh, hey Paul. 
thanks for everything you are doing. Uh, I follow you in uh, uh, in your blog, and I su subscribe to your uh, YouTube channel, and I think it's a great job you are doing. So um, I just wanted to ask you about um, what do you think about the cod liver oil pills? Do you think it's useful to have them in a survival situation? We have heard about how to pack food for three, four days. You can easily pack a can of meat, two cans of meat, maybe a couple of soups and maybe some uh, sweets, some, uh, I don't know, nuts, peanuts or these kind of things. But what do, do you think about this, um, this cod liver oil pills? Because they actually give you fat you get fat from it and they give you some vitamins. So yeah, just what do you think about that? Uh, well, don't worry if you don't answer this question. Of course, we know you're very busy, but uh, thanks to you anyway, and continue the great job. Bye. Thank you. And that was from Ignacio. Ignacio Nogales, I hope I pronounced that correct. Nogales, Nogales. Ignacio. Okay, Ignacio. Um, interesting question, not one we've had before. Um, so I would I'd cut it right back to, you said survival situation rather than camping situation. I think that's what you meant, but then you also talked about packing food. Um, so I don't know exactly what circumstances that you're thinking about, but if you're talking about needing to sustain yourself over a period of time, what's optimal to pack, maybe in a small amount, I wouldn't be packing cod liver oil tablets, not for the reasons that you talked about anyway. Um, yes, they contain fat, but what's, what size is a cod liver oil tablet? Um, it's probably, what, 500 milligrams of cod liver oil, perhaps? Um, in one of those tablets. So it's like half a gram of cod liver oil. Um, a gram of fat has nine calories in it. So you're talking about four and a half calories. So I certainly wouldn't be taking it for the calorific value for, the, for that reason. Um, vitamins, yes, but they're not vitamins that you need on a day-to-day -day basis in the sense that you need a, 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 an amount going in every day necessarily. So in terms of, uh, and, and this is the point I'm coming to round to, in terms of changing the outcome of a survival situation um, that most people are going to find themselves in in today's world where you're going to be rescued in a relatively short period of time, even if it's a month. You know, we, there was that Czechoslovakian woman who was found in a hut in New Zealand recently after being missing for a month. Um, even for a month, would you survive without cod liver oil tablets? Yes. Um, is it going to be a marginal help to carry those? Not massively. Where I might carry cod liver oil tablets if, if, it was, if I was doing a long distance hike. If I was doing a long distance hike, I might take a one a day cod liver oil tablet with me for joint health, for general health, for the, for the vitamins because I'm, I'm, I'm expending my energy. I tend to take, personally, I tend to take cod liver oil tablets um, on, a, on a daily basis anyway. They're good for cardiovascular health. The omega-3 fatty acids are good for your brain. So I tend to take, I eat a reasonable amount of fish um, anyway, 
you have to be a bit careful about what fish you eat these days because of the amount of heavy metals poisonings but uh, in, in, in the seas increasingly. But you know, fish oils generally are good for you. They're good for your brain. They're good for your um, system in general. They're good for your cardiovascular health. They're good for your joint health. So do I take them on a day-to-day -day basis on a, on, normally? Yes. If I was doing a long distance hike where I wanted to maintain my health, particularly given the rigors of, on my body of doing a long distance hike, would I carry a one a day, you know, little pack of cod liver oil tablets? I may well do, particularly given that would be something that would be hard to uh, get in small amounts along the way. Would I pack them into a survival pack for a short to medium term in the modern context, survival situation? No, I wouldn't. I would be more interested in having more immediately accessible energy and um, I have enough fat <laughs> on my body. And this is, this, is, this is the other important point. As I say, half a gram of fat in each one of those tablets, you're not gonna make a big marginal difference in terms of energy. Where you are gonna make a bigger marginal difference with a survival kit is carrying some sweets. You mentioned sweets. Um, boiled sweets are good because they, they, sucking a boiled sweet, as well as it being a pleasant flavor and a good morale boost, would um, drip feed sugar into your system. Um, your, your, your brain, we can talk about ketones and all sorts of things another time, but before we get onto that, your brain generally, and particularly if you haven't trained not to be on carbohydrates, your brain wants carbohydrates. Yeah, It's an obligate carbohydrate, an obligate glucose consumer, and you, you burn a lot of, um, of glucose in your brain. And you will feel that every single day when your blood sugar gets low, you get a bit fuzzy in the head, you can't think as straight, your recoil starts to diminish. If you don't eat for a full day, more so, you, you, your speech isn't as good, your recall isn't as good, you're not as quick, you're not as fast in terms of your reflexes. That's not a situation you want to be in, in a survival situation. So if I was gonna carry anything, I would carry some boiled sweets that I could drip feed sugar into my system to help maintain my mental faculties um, while I made important decisions, particularly in the early stages of that situation. Equally, it may well be worth putting some chocolate bars or uh, something else into a pack. If I was gonna pack anything, that's what I would put in. Um, yes, there'd be a bit of fat in there as well, but it's gonna allow my blood sugar to have a bit of have a bit of a boost, something like a Snickers bar or a Cadbury's, you know, whole nut or something that has got some sugar, it's got some, um, it's got some fat and it's got a bit of protein in there as well that's just gonna help maintain my blood sugar so I can think while I'm making difficult decisions and prioritizing if we're talking about survival situations. So that, that's the differentiation that I would make. I think for long-term health, absolutely, take some cod liver oil. Um, if you're doing a long trip, take some with you as part of your overall supplies. They're not going to be very big. If you think about doing a month-long canoe trip or a six-week canoe trip or a multi-month hiking trip, taking some cod liver oil tablets with you and you resupply maybe some other food along the way, particularly with a hiking trip, you couldn't carry a month worth of food um, very easily. You're gonna resupply along the way, um, but I would probably be carrying some cod liver oil tablets um, and if I couldn't resupply, so if I hadn't set the supply dumps myself, put a little bit in each supply pack, I would maybe just take a packet with me and then I can have one of those a day um, as part of my 
supplement routine. Um, and that would be one that was quite high at the top of my list um, in terms of supplements. I don't tend to take multivitamins. I tend to eat quite a, a varied diet, but I do like taking cod liver oil tablets and I do like taking glucosamine as well for, for joint health. Um, gluco glucosamine MSM complex I take for, for joint health and to try and keep joints. And going back to a previous question about martial arts, I started taking glucosamine when I was getting problems, particularly with my elbow joints, with all the arm locks and, and punching in Wing Chun where you're, you're, you're jarring your, your elbows. Um, that was taking its toll and I started taking glucosamine on the recommendation of somebody and that diminished the problems that I was having with soft tissue injuries and joints and I've pretty much consistently taken it ever, ever since. So hopefully that answers your question Ignacio. If there's a follow-up question, if there's more thinking behind that, um, let me know. Tarp or tent? From Ray Tellier. And good to hear from you again, Ray. This is from a while ago, so apologies for that. Um, as I say, this, this, this stream of questions doesn't seem to get any uh, less broad or deep. They keep coming, they keep coming, and I'm doing my best to get through them. So anyway, question. Uh, hi, Paul. I watch all your Ask Paul Kirtley videos, and they are great. I'm new at bushcraft. What is better to get for my kit, a tarp or a tent? A good tarp costs about as much as a tent. So at this point, where funds are an issue, which one is best? Thank you, Ray from Exeter NH, New Hampshire. Okay. So um, I think there's a false assumption there in the first place that a, uh, a tarp costs the same as a tent. Um, you might certainly be able to buy a tent for the same amount of money as a given tarp, but that tent will not be a very good tent. Per, that, that, that's my view. Um, the, the best tarps cost significantly less than the best tents. So um, you can get a really, really, really good tarp for less than a quarter of what the top tents cost. So it, I don't think you're comparing apples with apples. I think you need to go back to what do you actually want the shelter to achieve? Under what circumstances are you going to be using it? Um, is it going to be very exposed? We've had quite a few instances of having discussions about tarps and rain and, and those sorts of circumstances recently. So are you going to be in a situation where you're going to be on an exposed hillside with no trees, with sideways rain blowing at you? You probably want to be in a tent rather than in a tarp under most circumstances. Um, are there going to be a lot of biting insects around? That's another instance where you may well want to be in a tent rather than in a tarp. Even if you're just using the inner tent as a sort of mosquito uh, shelter while you sleep in your, in your sleeping bag. You know, even in fine weather, a, a, a tent may be the answer there. Um, are you going to be out in seasons where it might still be warm at night, but quite frosty, uh, warm in the day, but potentially frosty at night? Um, you're going to be warmer in a tent than you are in a tarp. So then it's a, it's a, you're weighing up because you've got this air trapped, particularly in a small tent, you've got warm air trapped around you. 
that means you might not need to move onto your winter sleeping bag in the autumn, in the fall. Whereas if you're under a tarp, because you haven't got that warm air trapped around you, it's a bit colder under there. You might on a frosty night need to move towards your four season bag. So then, okay, what's, what's the optimal weight then? Your tent and the three season bag or your tarp and the four season bag? How much room have you got? Um, remember, if you're taking a tarp, you probably need to take a bivy bag as well. So it's, it's, a, it's weighing up. And again, I've, I've talked about engineering problems before. These are all just engineering problems. If you set aside any romantic notions, at the end of the day, what are the parameters? What, you, what you're trying to resolve? What are the specifications of the kit? What's the right kit for the job? That, that is how you come to the answer. So I can't give you a general answer, what's better, a tarp or a tent? Because under different circumstances, different ones will be better. And that's before you start talking about what's more pleasurable under certain circumstances. Yeah, and you can put the pleasure in there as a parameter if you want to, and that's gonna be more subjective from person to person. You know, some people really don't like being out under a tarp because they think they're going to have slugs on their face and they're going to have um, spiders even if that you know there are no dangerous spiders here so it'd be fine to sleep on the ground here but they don't like the thought of spiders crawling over them in the night or uh, moths bothering them when they're trying to read their book under a tarp because they've got their headlamp on and the moths are flying towards the headlamp and that irritates them they'd rather be in their tent reading without being bothered by insects that are attracted to their head torch. So think about the things that you enjoy and don't enjoy about the outdoors and put it into that context. Do you really, really enjoy having uh, the breeze across your face while you're sleeping, the fresh air in your lungs while you're sleeping, waking up in the morning, looking straight out into the woods? Um, you probably wanna be under a tarp. Um, if you can. So it, part of it is about personal preference and what you enjoy. But a lot of it is about engineering what solves the problem of rain, wind, insect pests, temperature, all of those sorts of things. And that will get you to the answer of what's best under those circumstances. Sometimes it could be a tent and a tarp, you know, a small one-man tent, with a tarp over the front so that you've got space to get changed. I often use that on, a, on canoe trips now. Um, take a lightweight one-man tent. You don't have any bother with insects in there, but then you've got a tarp outside the front so you can get changed. You can get out of your wet paddling gear, even if it's raining. You can get into and out of your gear without trying to do it inside a small tent. You can pack everything up underneath it into your portage pack. The tent can go down last and last most, the tarp can fold down and go in and everything's kept dry. You're not having to do things either cramped in your tent, getting your sleeping kit and the inside of your tent wet with your wet paddling gear. You're not having to stand outside getting changed in the rain. The two together can work very well as well. So don't always think of them as an either or solution either, but it goes back to what the parameters, what am I trying to solve? How much weight can I take? What the temperature is going to be? What insects are, going to, are there going to be? And also, what am I going to enjoy? Hopefully that helps.
Last one, another shelter question. This is from Instagram and it's one from Quixotic Geek and it's from a while ago and it's about materials for bedding and she asks, in one of your videos you explain why using bracken as insulation for bedding is a bad idea. What alternatives can you recommend that can be found in the broadleaf woodlands of southern Britain? This is not my shelter in the photograph. I found it in the woods and co-opted it as a windbreak. Cool. Well, one of my colleagues, Spoons, jumped onto that straight away. And as he says there, um, birch branches. Birch branches, um, we often think of them as a really good kindling material, but slightly thicker and kept slightly longer, they're really very, very springy. And if you put a bundle of them together, they're really quite springy. Um, so birch branches are, are a good one. Um, if they're really dry, you'll end up breaking quite a lot of them. But if you get enough of them in there, um, and if they're greener, or if they haven't been long dead, or you've, take, or you've collected them green, um, they'll be nice and springy. And um, in the winter, they won't have any foliage on them, so they're going to be springy. And without the damp foliage on them, they're going to make a good springy platform. Um, other things I've seen used are spruce. Uh, spruce boughs, green spruce boughs work well, um, but even um, dead spruce boughs will work well. But again, bundled together to make almost like mattress bundles, they work well. Um, a harder bed of logs with spruce on top of it to, to, to even out the lumps and to make it more comfortable. Um, what you're looking to do, clearly comfort is important, but you're looking to break the conductive heat loss to the ground. That's the important thing. If you've got a sleeping mat, it doesn't matter. Don't worry, you don't need a bed. You don't need bedding unless you're in really, really cold environments where you need that added insulation underneath. So um, in the far north, in the boreal forest in winter, you dig down the snow down to the ground and then you put spruce boughs in and then you put your sleeping mat and your bivy bag and your, and your sleeping bag inside the bivy bag on top of that, so you've got extra insulation. But generally, when you're camping, if you've got a good modern sleeping mat, whether it's a closed cell foam mat or whether it's an inflatable mat, um, you're gonna have enough insulation from the ground. That's why it's one of the most important things to carry with you when you're camping. And if you don't believe me, try sleeping on the ground. Even at this time of year, you know, we're really still transitioning from summer into autumn at the moment. Um, it's not that cold, um, but if you try sleeping on the ground, even in a bivy bag and a sleeping bag without a sleeping mat, there is that, that sleeping bag will crush down to very little. There will be a lot of conductive heat loss into the ground. Worse still, if you just try and sleep on the ground. Um, in, in an improvised shelter, if you try and sleep on the ground without anything, it's very unpleasant. Even with a fire in front of you, it, it can be not so pleasant. So having a good understanding of materials that you can put down is, is important. And what, just to reiterate, I'll link to that Bracken video again here for YouTube people um, in the show notes on my blog for people that are watching or listening on my blog or listening on all the other podcast platforms, paulkirtley.co.uk, find episode 37 in the show notes. There'll be a link to that Bracken video. The reason bracken doesn't work very well, aside from the fact it might be harboring ticks, that's something that people focus on. We talked about insects, we talked about shorts, I think last week, 
yeah, that can be an issue and we do need to be mindful of Lyme disease and other, and other issues. But at the end of the day, what will kill you faster than any of those things in, a, in, a, in an outdoor survival situation or a situation where you need to rely on these skills is hypothermia. Hypothermia is one of the biggest killers in the outdoors, either directly or because it stops people thinking straight, they make poor decisions, they make navigational errors, and they fall off things or they succumb to the cold and people can come down with hypothermia very quickly and so spending a night out in the open it's not a pleasant thing to do at best and it's potentially lethal thing to do under the wrong circumstances if you're cold and wet and the ground's cold you're going to lose heat into the ground the whole time if you can't get a fire going even more so the reason bracken isn't particularly good is because it's if you collect it green it's wet yep uh, it contains a lot of moisture. You put it down, it seems quite springy, but as soon as you lie on it, it squashes down to nothing. So you're lying on something which is wet and water conducts heat away from you 25 times faster than air. It's gonna make your clothing damp. It's not going to stop much cold. Um, you feeling the cold, i.e. heat going into the ground because what stops heat transferring in most of the insulative materials that you're familiar with is an air gap. And because it squashes down to nothing, there's no air trapped in it. One of the reasons an inflatable air mattress works so well, it's not because it's full of you know, insulative material other than air. It's full of air which stops the heat going through to the ground. If you've got something that's got no air trapped in it that is not a particularly good insulator in and of itself, you're gonna lose heat into it. Add to that the fact that it's damp, it's just a crap um, bedding material before you even start on some of the other issues with it. So what you want is something that's springy, not just because it's comfortable, because it doesn't crush down to nothing. It traps the air in it. It suspends you up and away from the ground where you're going to be damp. You're going to be conducting heat into the ground very quickly. That's the primary purpose. So spruce, birch in the context that you're talking about and any other springy branches that you can get hold of that hold you up off the ground. And that's it. That brings us to the end of this session. Now, Tom Scandian, who is um, a student of mine um, on some of the uh, online programs, and if you're not familiar with the online programs, um, you need to be on my mailing lists on my blog. If you're not on my mailing list on my blog or I sometimes send material out on the Frontier mailing list as well but if you're not get on my mailing list on my blog if you're not on that you won't find out about them um, when they're open I'll let you know but Tom is a student on some of my online programs he is traveling and working in Australia and he's doing a fantastic job of applying all of those things that he's learning at a distance and applying them in the context of where he is at the moment. And it's really nice to see he's um, posting a lot of that on his Instagram feed as well. Um, but he has suggested a weekly challenge. Um, and I, I'm not sure I'm going to give a challenge every week, but I like the idea of a question or a challenge or something for you to do if you want at the end of these Aspore Kirtleys sometimes. So um, 
We're currently sort of transitioning from summer towards autumn. Um, you know, it's certainly starting to feel more autumnal. I mentioned that last week, same this week, really. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's getting there. Week on week, things are changing now. Um, it's not as warm at night. Um, the daytime temperature is still reasonably high, but it, things are going brown around the edges. It's been quite dry here this summer, and I think that's bringing some of the aspects of autumn on quite quickly. A lot of things were looking brown and a bit frazzled around the edges, and now they're really drying out and, and wilting quite quickly now. Um, I don't know if you can see behind me, but the bracken, it's quite green in the middle there, but around the edges it's all... It's all uh, Put the planes back now it's all uh, brown around the edges so what i would like to hear from you um, and you've got two places that you can put this if you want to answer you can um, answer in the comments below the blog post related to this episode episode 37 on my blog so whether you're listening to the audio or watching the video on my blog go directly below the comments section there if you're listening to a podcast elsewhere to this podcast elsewhere go to my blog paulkirtley.co.uk find episode 37 comments there it'd be great to hear from you what i would like to hear is as we go from summer into autumn what is now your priority in terms of what, what are you aiming to do in the coming weeks? What skills are you aiming to practice? Um, because it's a time of year that a lot of people start to think about not camping very much or not going out. So it'd be great to hear what you're looking to do in the coming weeks. Not just the coming week, but the coming weeks. What's your focus at the moment? Are you looking at autumn wild edibles? Are you um, looking at fungi in particular? Are you looking to um, build out your winter camping gear as it starts to get colder to continue your camping into the, into the autumn? Are you looking to be practicing your fire lighting skills in colder, damper conditions? Um, that's if you're in the northern hemisphere. Clearly, if you're in the southern hemisphere, you're going the other way. You're going from, um, you're going from winter towards the warmer days. So um, what is your focus at the moment as the seasons are changing what's your focus in terms of skills and experience at the moment it'd be great to hear that as i say podcast listeners video watchers on my blog on my blog comments or if you're on youtube i'll let you off you can leave comments underneath this on the youtube video um, and i'll check those as well i don't always get into the youtube comments as often as i would like but uh, I do my best. There's a lot of comments on YouTube videos. The more videos I put on YouTube, the more comments I have to deal with. And it's getting harder and harder and harder. But I'll do my best to try and acknowledge your comment. And I certainly read them all. It's, it's replying to them all consistently, which is difficult. It's easy for me to scroll through. It's easy for me to read them. And it's really good to hear from people. So even if I don't always reply, I do read all the comments, both on my blog and on YouTube and I read all the tweet replies that people do, and I try and keep up with Instagram comments as well, even though that comment system on there is really difficult um, because they don't separate out likes and comments. So if I don't reply to things, apologies, I do my best to read absolutely everything, and that's, that's really good. Um, that keeps me going, to be honest with you. That's the nutrition that I need to keep doing these because I know I'm not doing it in a vacuum. I know that people are responding to it. I know that people are valuing it. 
and I know that um, I know that you're getting something out of it. So that would be fantastic. And I've mentioned Instagram a few times. If you're not following me on Instagram, I'm putting out consistent little mini blogs almost on, on Instagram. Please follow me on Instagram. I'll put my name up here again on the video. Paul Kirtley, you can search for me on Instagram. There's links in my YouTube profile. There's links on my blog sidebar. You can find me on there and say hi and benefit from that stuff that I'm putting on there as well because it really complements the sort of things that we're talking about here as well. Um, they, the two go together very, very nicely and clearly that all sits on top of that foundational stuff that you're going to see all the time on my blog as well. So thank you again for your attention. I appreciate your time. I appreciate the questions. I appreciate the patience of people who've been waiting to have their questions answered for a while. I will do my best to answer a load more before long on episode 38 of Aspore Kirtley. And until then, take care and enjoy the outdoors. Bye.